Hello and welcome to Think Business Futures. We're coming to you from Tourist in Sydney on the Gadigal lands of the Euro Nation. I'm Anthony Dockrell. This program is made possible by the assistance of the UTS Business School. Last week, the Anthony Albanese government announced its housing plan it hoped would end Australia's rental crisis. The rental crisis has seen many people priced out of the market, and with emergency and social housing exhausted, many people are now feeling a level of housing stress that has them at breaking point. The government's plan is for the construction of 1.2 million houses over five years and relies on state governments to implement the new planning and zoning rules to make it happen. Will this make a difference and has the plan got enough protection for renters? To discuss this, we're fortunate to have Professor Alan Morris. He's an urban and housing scholar at the University of Technology, Sydney. Professor Alan Morris, welcome to Think Business Futures. Thanks very much, Anthony. Alan, we've been hearing a lot about the housing crisis and and many of us are now also experiencing it. What for you is this crisis and how does it look around the country? Look, I think the crisis is deep and it's very extensive. But obviously, well, it's the, you know, the people mainly affected are people who are on low incomes, like the bottom 40%. And I think it's manifesting in various ways. I mean, obviously, a lot of people are having to spend a very substantial proportion of their income on housing, which leaves them less money for very often necessities, even food, but certainly any extraordinary expense around medical needs, for example, which aren't covered by Medicare. Uh, kids are deprived in terms of outings, etc. And of course, a lot of people also are having to live very far out in order to afford the rent um, or afford the mortgage repayment. And uh, that creates, I think, a lot of a lot of tension within families. Enormous amount of commuting time, very expensive in terms of tolls, for example. And then, of course, the, the insecurity, you know, especially in the rental sector, as we know, most most leases are six or twelve months. So, I think for many households uh, in this current climate, on a very very tight rental market. The possibility of being asked to vacate is a constant anxiety and fear because uh, there's a realization that it would be very, very difficult to find alternative housing. So I think for, for many, you know, hundreds of thousands of Australians, <clears throat> um, maybe a couple of million actually, everyday life has become very hard because of the housing crisis. Look, this is a multifaceted problem and it looks different depending on where you are and your income level. How much is housing in Australia driving inequality? Look, I think it's an absolutely fundamental factor. You know, one can really, well, I mean, very simply, there's the the initial division between people who are outright homeowners and people who have mortgages and then people who are renting. And then, you know, within renting, private renters versus social housing tenants. Obviously, people who have paid off their housing will generally have formal disposable income. And even if you're on a government benefit, like an age pension, you know, if you've paid off your housing and you have you have very low housing costs as a result, you can lead a decent, albeit uh, frugal life. If you have a mortgage, which is sizable, and of course, you know, a lot of people have been caught by the interest rate increases, which took most of us by surprise. A lot of people in, you know, who had large mortgages are really struggling. 
and it's creating a huge amount of tension. And I think as you know, a lot of the people who took out fixed interest loans, as a lot of them are coming to an end now, so that's going to create more problems. And then in terms of the private rental sector, of course, you know, a lot of private rent, you know, not all private renters are low income. You have substantial proportion of private renters who the tenure is really a transitional tenure. At some point, they'll, they'll purchase a property. But I think what is happening in the private rental sector is that whereas historically the private rental sector is very much a transitional sector, <clears throat> people would stay in that, in that sector for a period of time. Uh, then they would move on to purchasing a home. Uh, what is happening now is that more and more low-income families are stuck in the private rental sector, you know, for many years or even lifelong. And that obviously creates ongoing tension in terms of in terms of insecurity, in terms of maintenance issues, because what happens is that people are terrified to ask the landlord or the real estate agent to do anything because they're worried about the rent, to be, the rent being increased. So they tend to be reluctant and then, you know, you get decline and damp and more, et cetera, et cetera. So I think, you know, the whole range of, you know, the whole range of inequality is both in terms of disposable income, assets, insecurity, et cetera. And of course, people are really at the bottom of the list are people who are homeless, you know, and that's, I'm sure that homelessness is increasing. A lot of that would be hidden. A lot of people are living in very overcrowded conditions. Multi-general families living in, you know, in a, in a small dwelling. So, yeah, no, I think housing is really driving inequality. It's a fundamental feature now. And look, we'll get to the homeless and, and people who are doing it really tough, but I think one of the other aspects about what's going on at the moment, which is really interesting, is people who would have considered themselves to be, you know, uh, middle class or middle income people are finding that they can't get out of the rental market. So the rental market, as you said, used to be seen as a place to transition from to a homeowner, but they're unable to do it. Yeah. So they are stuck in the rental market as well. Yeah, yeah, no, I think that's that's right. I, you know, I haven't, you know, I haven't got any sets stats in front of me in terms of it's like more affluent renters. But I should imagine, you know, with especially metropolitan areas, you know, Sydney, Melbourne, etc., to get into the housing market is very, very hard. And even for you know people on reasonable incomes, it's it's very difficult without parental support. So what you have in now is that so that's the other very important aspect of um, housing and inequality, and that's very intergenerational. So you know if you have parents who have some who are able to support you, you know your chances of entering into the housing market are far far greater. And of course, the I mean the other big factor is um, your relationship status. You know people who single are in a far more vulnerable position in a way as regards housing. You know, if you've got a single income, people in, you know, two two income households are obviously in a much better position. So I think yeah, a range of ramifications and situations as regards possibilities of accessing home ownership. Look, many Australians are not just in stress, they're facing being homeless. Emergency housing is tapped out. You recently wrote in the conversation that 175,000 Australians on the, on the waiting list for social housing. Why have governments invested so little in this area when the need is so high? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. 
of course, it hasn't always been like this. I mean, there have been periods in Australian history where, yeah, there was a fair amount of investment in social housing. So between 1985 and um, 1995, for example, during the Hawke-Keaton era, um, 115,000 homes, public housing dwellings were built. You know, over ten thousand a year, so that's that's pretty substantial. I think once Howard got the coalition got back into power in nineteen ninety six, there was a real antagonism, I think, that towards social housing and the building of social housing really, you know, ground to a, not a to a virtual halt. I mean, very few homes were built, in, and what you had was this, you know, increasing gap between population growth and the number of social dwellings built. So, whereas in the mid nineteen nineties, six percent of all housing was uh, social housing, now it's down to around about four percent. So it, it it makes a trail, although it's only two percent, it makes a tremendous difference in terms of absolute numbers. And so, I'm not, you know, the reluctance, I think there was just a sense that, uh, you know, it's, it's maybe lunches, et cetera, you know, and require social housing. People must rely on the market. The market will provide. Or people must work hard, you know. You can't give them housing. Housing obviously is a very expensive commodity. And, yeah, so I think there was this reluctance to to reinvest in social housing. I think it was seen as a negative. And it's interesting, even during the last, you know, during the pandemic and the financial crisis, which resulted there, you know, from the pandemic, economists, sociologists, people in the housing sector begged the federal government to use federal uh, social housing as a stimulus. You know, it was a it was an obvious way path, but the Morrison government absolutely point blank refused. This does bring in a, a, a divide I want to talk about because, in many respects, the housing crisis that we're going through is market failure. But you know, th- this also isn't just market failure, is it? I mean, this is also government failure to to turn up. I mean, it, it, areas where government should be uh, working towards outcomes are not necessarily the place for the market to to fix. You obviously think that government has 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 dropped the ball here. Is that a correct read? Well, certainly in terms of social housing, absolutely. No doubt about it. I mean, there was a bit of a blip, you know, a, in response to the global financial crisis in 2008, of course, the Rudd government did use social housing as a, as a central stimulus package and around about 19,300 homes were built, which, you know, was very significant and has made a big difference. And the other thing about those homes is that a lot of them just blended into the neighborhood. You know, they weren't stigmatized and a lot of them were low-rise, et cetera. It was a very, very good, very successful program. And, uh, yeah, historically, I think, especially the coalition government has really dropped the ball in the sand. You know, as a result, to get into social housing is incredibly difficult. So, for you know, you mentioned the 175,000 people on the social housing waiting list. Now, in, in New South Wales, for example, they're around about 57,500, I think, on the waiting list, of which 6,000, I think, 100 on the priority list. Now, if you're not on the priority list, you have, I mean, your chances of getting to social housing are incredibly low. What are some of the waiting times? Well, you know, if you go onto the DCJ website, Department of 
community, DC, our community and justice. And you look there, they give you, they give years that you, you'll probably be waging. And in most years, most parts of New South Wales, even in regional areas, you know, it's, it's 10 years generally. But that's the stated on the website, but you know, it's probably, it's probably a lot more than that. 10 years. In, uh, in Sydney. And because there's so many people on the priority list, you know, and to get on the priority list, you really have to be virtually homeless. You, know, you have to be in a shelter or living in very, very unsatisfactory situations, single parent, you know, living in abysmal circumstances, having to use a very substantial part of your income to pay the rent, etc. So um, it's really, it's, as a result, the people on the waiting list very often Although they on the maybe on the general waiting list, that doesn't mean that they're not in dire circumstances. You know, they'll be using a very, very substantial part of the income to pay the rent, you know, 70, 80%. They'll be skipping meals. They won't be able to attend to quite urgent medical needs. And the level of depression and anxiety within that group you know, is extremely high. So I think, uh, that, I mean, that's the other thing about housing and this whole housing crisis. And there's so many unintended consequences, you know, the, and then the health consequences, I think, are absolutely profound for many people, you know, especially the mental health implications, but also the physical health in terms of people's capacity to look after themselves, you know, is really curtailed. I mean, if you spend in a very significant proportion of your income on housing, it's difficult to, you know, feed yourself and your family adequately. The, the problem is largely one of supply, and I'm going to turn now to the the plan that was announced last week from the federal government. Mm. So the, the federal co- cabinet has basically passed a plan where up to 1.2 million houses will be built over a period of five years. Uh, it should mm. be said that 1 million of those houses have basically been announced already, so it's really uh, an mm. additional 200,000 what do you think of the plan and will it make a difference? Look, I think, uh, you know, I think supply is very important, obviously. You know, we need, we need to keep up with population growth and demand. You know, there's a scarcity of housing, obviously prices go up, both in terms of the cost of housing and in terms of rent. But at the same time, it's, the plan is uh, full of holes in a sense. You know, it's very dependent on the private, it's totally dependent on the private sector in a way. It also is very dependent on state governments and local governments agreeing, you know, to increase in density, etc. So, you know, it's the potential for rich in the 1.2 million. They're like, you know, there, there, there are a lot of possibilities, possible slip-ups, so to speak. I mean, I think that the other very big problem is that this is all about the market. But I think the big problem is that a lot of the, you know, a considerable, considerable proportion of the housing which is built for the market is not affordable, to the, certainly to the bottom 20%, but even to the bottom 30% or 40% of the households. And I think what we need is really a, an affordable housing strategy. You know, we have a housing strategy, but what we need is an affordable housing strategy. Supply will not bring down prices to such an extent that that bottom 30% can really easily afford housing. You know, it will remain this very, very expensive, uh, difficult commodity to attain. 
But I mean, I think in order to build housing, you need you need the cooperation of governments, obviously, and that's you know that's always questionable whether you're going to get it or not. You know, especially more in wealthier areas where homeowners have got a lot of power. You know, they they don't want their suburbs to be dominated by high-rise blocks, etc. So I think it's going to be, it's, it's not going to be an easy fix at all. You know, I think there's going to be a lot of resistance. And, and the incentive, you know, for every house above two, above a million, $15,000 is given, well, that's not terribly much really in the scheme of things. So I think, you know, I really do feel that it's not going to resolve the crisis. It's, it will may help maybe stabilize things. But I think what we need to recognize is that there's this incredible crisis. You know, we really need to address it. And government really needs to step in. It's, it's creating terrible trauma for, for many, many people. I mean, on one, on one side, the, the plan is quite ambitious, 1.2 million houses over five years. That's a very tight time frame for, uh, for that level of building. But I think you've already highlighted the, the risk in all of this and is that it, it's relied on the states and it's relying on radical change to planning and zoning rules. Mm-hmm. Do, you, do you think there, there is appetite at the state level to make these changes? Well, look, I mean, I think the states... State governments are very aware that they need to do something and probably they'll try their best. You know, then you're also dealing with very powerful local governments. So it becomes, it becomes very difficult. And if you start imposing plans on communities, you know, communities can get very, I suppose, resistant. So it's, it's, it's not going to be smooth sailing. But also, you know, the population's increasing all the time. Now, of course, we have very high immigration in the pipeline already. So, you know, the, the building, it will be, if the population, it sounds like over the next two years, the population's going to, in terms of migrating, they're going to be around about 600,000 um, immigrants coming into Australia, you know, which obviously in many ways is a good thing. But uh, all those people require, all those households require housing. So I should imagine, I don't know what the five-year target is as regards immigration. But then, and then there's natural growth, you know. So I think, you know, I don't think it's going to cause a huge shift in terms of affordability. I really don't. I think it will be, the impact will be fairly minor mm. and um, the crisis will persist. Well, the Grattan Institute have written in the conversation about the plan, they've been very mm. positive about the plan, basically saying rents will drop by 4% over five years. Mm. Um, sure. Uh, that's 5% without the plan, 4% without the plan. Do, do you share their optimism? No, not really. I mean, I think, look, I mean, it's very difficult to predict these things. I mean, it's whether rents will drop or not, I don't know. But even if they do drop 4%, you know, it's not terribly much, really, when you think about it. I mean, if, you know, if, if the mean rent is $500 a week, um, so you're talking about a drop of, say, $25 a week. You know, it's not a huge amount. It'll still mean that many people are going to be struggling. I don't think that's but actually a drop. I didn't read it as being a drop of the rent actually going down, that the rent would be 4% lower than the price would be in five years right. without the plan. So I, I think it still actually anticipates rents rising. So the 4% okay. doesn't seem a lot of bang for the buck, does it? 
No, 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 it's, it's, it's not. It's, I don't think it will make him, you know, a, a substantial difference, really. The, the, one of the aspects the plan's obviously dealing with is that this is a state issue, really, and the, the outcry is across the nation, so the federal government does need to step in. Do, do you think there were levers that the federal government could have pulled, but they didn't? Well, I suppose the one thing they could do is really increase the amounts that's allocated for necessary affordable and social housing. I mean, that's the, that's the area which is, I think, still very weak. I mean, they have now given $2 billion to the states, which is very good, but there's no sense of continuity of that. So we've seen it, it appeared to be a one-off. The Housing Future Fund, you know, $10 billion, if you have profits of 5%, you're talking about $500 million. That's really all in terms of actually uh, increasing housing supply. I mean, they talk about 30,000 homes being bought over the next five years. Well, that's... That's highly debatable whether it's a, whether it's high housing future fund, but even thirty thousand is not very much in terms of a crisis. You know, they really got to. I think we have to have a target of at least ten thousand homes per year. We need to, have, I would say, boost the social and affordable housing budget to at least three, four billion dollars a year, at least, if not more. I mean, ideally, I think it should be around about two percent of the federal budget, which would be which would be equivalent to about thirteen billion dollars. And then you can start really start making a difference. You know, what what is happening because of the crisis is so deep now. I think government really has to see this as a national crisis and devote the resources, the appropriate resources. You know, we are a wealthy country. I think we can afford it. And it will just make a tremendous difference to people's lives. And in terms of, you know, in terms of cost benefit, if one thinks about it, the health costs stemming from this crisis, I think, are absolutely phenomenal. Uh, people are, you know, the mental health costs, people's incapacity to work as a result or work in a very limited fashion. There, there are a whole range of consequences. Uh, the intergenerational trauma, I think, is very significant. So I think when you create a society where, you know, all households ideally have access to affordable and adequate and secure housing, I think you're going to also create a much healthier population. And I think very often governments tend to be, you know, don't really think about the consequences of this housing crisis. I think it's, you know, and I think the consequences are very profound, very negative, obviously. And they seem obviously um, consequences that are going to get worse over time. Yeah, yeah, I think they will. I think they'll deepen. Yeah, and uh, you know, it also has a lot. If you if you're a private renter and you constantly have to move, for example, you know, what are the impacts on the kids in terms of their schooling, etc.? What is the impact on you in terms of employment? So these are you know these are big chapters. Um, you asked what else the government can do. I think besides increasing the budget for social and affordable housing, I think the other big issue to look at is the rent assistance. You know, it's it's pretty minimal and it's also national. There are no locational differences. Now, obviously the rent in Sydney, in many areas of Sydney, is much, much higher than the rent in I don't know, in Dublin, for example. But you know, it's you get the same rent assistance. I think that's another area which could really be looked at. You know, do is there capacity to lift up what people get in terms of rent assistance? 
I think the other, especially for people on on benefits, you know, this if you're employed, it's a bit different. But if you depend on the age pension or job seeker, I mean, to find a place in private rental sector is virtually impossible without having to use most of your income to pay the rent. I think the other area which could be looked at, of course, is Airbnb. I think this has, you know, it's taken an enormous number of properties out of the rental market. And in many countries in the world now, you know, it's, there's, there's an endeavor to like bring those Airbnb properties back into the rental, into the traditional rental market. And, you know, this notion of having a property empty for 45 weeks of the year, whatever, you know, I think in the current crisis needs to be looked at. And maybe there should be, you know, increasing taxes on those properties. And the other thing, which is really very puzzling, I haven't got, I haven't got my head around it, is the fact that on census sites, around about ten percent of all properties were empty. So, what is, you know, where, where are these properties? What are these properties? I don't know. But I think any empty property, ideally, needs to be brought into the market. Obviously, something will be holiday homes. Something will be people who are away at the time of the census. Although it was during COVID, so not many people were travelling. But that is a real puzzle. I mean, that's, you know, that's, that's a lot over of homes. a million homes. Yeah. Well, well, over a million homes were empty well, on the census night. And you can add empty offices into that list as well yeah, because yeah, yeah, a lot, so, of, a yeah, lot yeah. of empty buildings in Sydney. Sure, sure. Yeah, I mean, the potential to, you know, empty office blocks into housing, affordable housing, I think something which really should be looked at. And then the other thing, of course, the big elephant in the room is the whole tax regime around around housing, you know, housing and uh, negative gear and capital gains tax, of course, are incredibly advantageous for the people who are investing in housing. It's very, you know, clearly it's a very, very difficult issue. But at some point, I think, you know, government really needs to look at it and try and get it under control because what it's doing, of course, is pushing up house prices, Make it, make it very difficult for first-time home buyers to enter into the market. Um, it's, you know, it's a very unusual tax. Very few countries have negative gearing and capital gains tax. It's, it's a very, very generous tax. And I think it's time we had another look at it. One in three adult Australians now rent, and rental rights have been strengthened somewhat in this proposal. The Greens have been very vocal and critical of these measures. Have the government got yeah. the power balance right? Ultimately, the, the whole landlord-tenant situation, I think, is dependent on the state government. I mean, the federal government can make suggestions. And it's very good that, I think, you know, no grounds eviction will, will go, I think. Certainly in New South Wales, it's going to go. It's really gone in ACT. I think it's gone in Victoria. I mean, the, the notion that the landlord can just turn around and tell you to go, you know, once your lease ends. I mean, that's incredible. In many countries in the world, you, know, you have tenants have incredible rights. You can't you can't turf them out. So I think you know what is really needed is a very significant strengthening of tenant rights. As long as you pay the rent, and as long as you you know don't you're not disruptive in terms of other tenants, etc., you should be allowed to stay. And you know at the moment it's very you know, it's 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 very difficult for tenants. And then the other big issue, of course, is maintenance. A lot of the landlords don't maintain, you know, a lot of especially more like cheaper rents. Landlords don't, you know, refuse to do necessary maintenance. 
And of course, as I said earlier, a lot of tenants are very intimidated, so they, they don't want the rent to be increased, so they keep quiet, even though there might be urgent repairs needed. So I, I think what's, what's probably needed is mm-hmm. like a national mutual with tenants, you know, tenants unions, which are very, very aware of all the problems and, and the regulation, you know, and it's like redrafting of regulations so that tenants have far more power as they do in many other countries, you know, where, you know, in countries like Switzerland, for example, half of the whole, and Germany, around about half the population are private renters. And the reason for that is that it's, it's, first of all, it's not stigmatized. Second of all, it's very secure. They don't like feel the need to purchase because they're very secure. Rent increases are very difficult. Now they've got to be justified and in line with inflation, et cetera. So I think what we really need, yeah, you know, I think the idea of a rent freeze is maybe going a step too far, but I, I do think we need rent caps. I mean, the notion that a landlord can just increase the rent to, to whatever the market can bear. I think that's really, that's pretty outrageous. I think there needs to be a cap in line with the inflation. Yeah, four, five, six percent maximum annually. I think many renters in Sydney would agree with you there. Uh, Professor Alan Morris, thanks for being on Think Business Futures. No worries, my pleasure. And thanks for listening to the program. This edition was recorded at the studios of Tura CR. If you want to listen to the program again or share it with your friends, just go to touracr.com or you can find us wherever you get your podcasts. Think Business Futures will be back next week. I'm Anthony Dockrell. Thanks for listening. Listening.